This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's time for bookings. Kia ora, welcome to Bookends with Ruth Todd and Moran Rout. And today I'm talking with Graham Lay about his new novel. And Ruth talks to Nikki Pellegrino about menopause. Nikki Pellegrino with her new book, Don't Sweat It. It's the first book I've read about menopause, and I'm 40 years too late. Welcome to the program, Nikki. Hello, how are you? Well, I have, you have changed a direction from your Italian fiction, um, fiction based on uh, things that happened in Italy when you visited there to do your research. Now you're becoming a very prominent health writer and uh, journalist, and I'm enjoying your articles in The Listener, and um, this must be the most important book that could have been written for women. Yeah, well, I had been thinking about writing a listener article about menopause, actually, because I was becoming really aware that things were changing, particularly in the UK and the US, and that there was finally a bit more research happening, and people's minds were, were sh- mindsets were shifting. So I'd been thinking, I'm going to write a story about this and saving snippets of information. And then I got asked by the publishers, Alan and Unwin, if I might like to write a book and said, rashly said yes, not realizing quite how difficult it was going to be because there's still a lot of conflicting information out there and it's difficult to get clear answers. So it was a huge research job, quite different to writing a novel. Um, But I think at the end of it, I found out an awful lot I didn't know. And I mean, I probably went through my menopause transition, you know, sort of over the last 10 years. I wish I'd known 10 years ago. Well, I go back. (laughs) I go back much longer than that, and I think it's just a revelation to me um, because I knew absolutely nothing. And um, my time HRT was a no-no, and um, certainly we didn't ever dream of telling anybody what we wanted um, or how we could control it to ourselves. That was, you know, you just lived through it, really. I know, and I think that's the message of the book really that there are things you can do not every woman has a tough time but i actually think a lot do and and it's not only hrt that's the option you know there are a suite of other things you can do but you don't need to be having a bad time because it can go on for quite a long time and actually we're quite reductive when we talk about menopause you know we talk about hot flushes and maybe being a bit moody but there are numerous symptoms and as I was researching the book I kept thinking oh that's what that was that's why I got really itchy all the time randomly and that's why I was having migraines and there were just masses of things that that happened to me sort of from my late 40s until probably a couple of years ago um, that I had no idea a were a menopause symptom and b that potentially I could have been doing something about because I I just did what a lot of women do and tried to soldier on. And since the book came out, I've heard from several women, people that I know who are very successful and very smart, 
who have been doing that. They've just been soldiering on feeling absolutely dreadful because they sort of didn't want to admit to themselves and other people that this was happening. And um, I don't know why, why we didn't. I mean, we were fairly strong, be- becoming strong feminists in my um, friendships and, and with other women, but we never, ever talked about it. No, and in workplaces, you know, I was a boss to a number of women and we talked about pregnancy and, get, you know, difficulties getting pregnant and their needs around coming back to work with young families. But there were middle-aged women on the staff. We never talked about what was going on with them and it didn't occur to me at that point that there might be anything going on with them. I I think it is because of ageism and None of us really wants to admit we're getting older and menopause is a bit of a sign. You know, we've lost our fertility where we can't pretend to be youthful anymore. And I think there's a stigma around that. And that's probably one of the reasons people stay quiet, particularly in a workplace, because you don't want, you know, you don't want to be seen as being past it and not relevant anymore. Um, So I think we need to change that mindset quickly because obviously we're all living much longer these days and continuing to make a contribution, a valuable contribution, way past our midlife. Um, and we need to recognise that and perhaps be a bit less, perhaps get rid of some of those, some of those ridiculous ideas and you know, prejudices around age. <clears throat> I would have thought that people your age... I'm quite a bit older than you, but I would have thought um, seeing younger women come up and doing so well and often at the peak of their careers when they're 40s to 60s or whatever, um, going through menopause, that it is much, uh, you know, people have learnt a lot and you're saying perhaps they haven't yet. Know if they've learned enough. I think there's still a sense that women lose their currency if they age. And if you look at one of the things I talk about in the book is this idea that women aren't allowed to show any sign of age on their faces. True. And a lot of our role models have had enormous amounts of things injected into their faces and bits here and there lifted. And while I'm not against appearance medicine or women, you know, trying to look their best, I think this idea that every trace of age should be eradicated and I'm talking about certain Hollywood stars here who you know their male counterparts have got saggier and baggier and greyer and they have just remained exactly the same Nicole Kidman is on the cover of this latest issue of Vanity Fair and she looks like a teenager and I find that a little disturbing that, that that's held up as what we're meant to look like and be like as we age, because it's not realistic for most of us. Well, it's a wonderfully um, frank and candid and witty investigation into the realities of menopause. So you have a ton of information in here for me to digest, but you also, um, you don't forget the myths and the misinformation, and you um, focus on everything optimistically, um, but you're, it's a realistic, honest approach. And and so I was, you know, chuckling to myself at some stages, thinking back, and then I was... Um, reading some very valuable information that I'd never heard of before. I'd never heard of the um, word, um, what was it, peri, 
perimenopause. Perimenopause. Yes, yeah, ne- never heard of that one. Period before your yes, period yes. Finished. I didn't know anything yeah. about that. So that was really good for me because I'm thinking of my daughter as who are that age now, and I just um, found it amazingly. Well, just amazingly, it's hitting the right level because it, there's enough seriousness. You've got some wonderful people you're, who are expressing what's happened to them um, throughout the book. Lots of New Zealand women we know, and uh, but you've you've also got a very a positive approach, but not. Not con- yeah, well, I, I wanted it to be entertaining. Yes. I didn't want it to be a dull read. I mean, obviously there's some science and stuff in there. You need to have that. But I also wanted there to be lighter moments. And there's bits where I get a bit ranty, probably. Um, and I share a lot of my own experience. But because menopause is such a diverse thing, and no two women really go through it the same way, I also wanted to talk to lots of different women about what, what had gone on. For them and they, and women were very generous. I talked to some quite well-known New Zealand women about their experiences, and they really were very, very open. And they talked about things that I was actually quite surprised about. You know, they talked about anxiety and depression suddenly striking them at this time of life very unexpectedly. They talked about various things happening to various body parts. And just really gave a sense of how it felt to be women entering a stage of life, which is a bit of a strange stage, really. You know, you're not young anymore, but you're not elderly either. You're sort of somewhere in the middle. That's right. It was, um, you know, the the thing I got most out of it um, for younger women now in, in their 40s, you are, I think, you were recommending everybody who turns 40 should read this book. Well, I am, if you didn't. But are we really going to suffer stigma, I quote, and silence at this time of our lives? Are we going to allow menopause to remain a mystery? I don't think so. Now, that's a great, firm statement. Yes, I think it's a bit of a manifesto, really, to say, actually, the thing that can help us through this is knowledge. And there's more and more knowledge out there. But as we all know, there's a lot of disinformation out there as well. So we need to get the accurate information because some women should not take HRT. If you've got a history of breast cancer, for instance, then it's a really bad idea to take HRT if you've had a hormone-positive breast cancer. So I think it's just vital for women to get that information. And the book is one way. Um, Also, we need, you know, our doctors to be more open and give us more information. And, And some GPs, some GPs are brilliant, but it's the luck of the draw. Some are very, very reluctant to talk about HRT and not at all... You know, then there's all this new information coming. GPs have to take it all on board for all the very, very many conditions that they're treating, and some of them just aren't up to the up to the play with menopause, unfortunately. So I'd say to women, if your if your GP's not really, you know, proving to be particularly helpful, find another one who is and ask around. Ask your female friends. Find one that says, yes, my GP's brilliant at this, and swap. And that's such an important thing to do, isn't it? And we, in my day, we didn't change our GP. That was, you know, you did just something you just didn't do. I know, um, I know, right? <laughs> when I was a kid, we had the same family GP, yeah, my, my entire childhood, and you didn't change, and you didn't question them. But I think that that, 
that has shifted now, partly because we've got so much information at our fingertips, but also I think we understand now that we, we should get to direct our own health. And if we make an informed choice, our doctors should respect that. So, um, you know, I think it is tricky. I think for a lot of women, they get so frazzled. For me, insomnia was a massive problem, probably year before last. I just, it was like all of a sudden the ability to sleep had been switched off. And you, it's very difficult to do or decide anything when you're in that state. You know, you know, your brain is just not firing anymore. It's in a complete fog. So it is tricky for women to, you don't necessarily feel like yourself. I at one point say I felt like I had imposter syndrome, except the person I was pretending to be was me, because I just didn't feel like myself at all anymore. The other fabulous thing, though, is I have to say now it's probably two years since I kind of had my last period, and I feel a lot more like my old self again, a slightly edited version. But um, it is a transition. It's not, it's not for life. Some women do go on to have hot flushes and things for a, a longer period of time. But certainly the distressing stuff like the mood swings and the rages that, you know, where you just feel like your personality's undergone some sort of very unpleasant transformation, all of that is a temporary thing. So. Yes, yes. And, and there's a freedom that comes, doesn't come straight away sometimes but you know new interests new adventures you get a, a boost of energy um well i did um afterwards and um you you sort of become yourself who you really want to be and that's i think happens to a lot of women um if you don't think about aging too much or you know don't don't add up the negatives just yeah. add up the positives. So thank you so much. It's funny, frank and optimistic and uh, a refreshing and up-to-the-minute guide to menopause for the modern woman. So Nikki Pellegrino, she's written Don't Sweat It, How to Make the Change a Good One, and it's published by Ellen and Unwin. You're listening to Bookends on Plains FM 96.9. Graham Lay has been a full-time writer since 1996 and he's published more than 40 books of fiction and non-fiction while also working as an editor, anthologist and manuscript assessor. His most recent uh, works are a novel trilogy based on the life of English explorer James Cook, which uh, were bestsellers. And Larry and Viv is his latest novel and takes us back to 1948 and the visit of the acclaimed actors, Sir Lawrence Olivier and his wife, the beautiful Vivian Lee. What captured you about this era and this visit, Graham? Well, I read a couple of biographies of, of Lawrence Olivier and uh, one of them said, oh, they came here in 1948 and New Zealand was then geographically and culturally isolated. And I thought, oh, yes, I wonder if that was the case. And I read a lot of background material. I read a book called Darlings of the Gods, which was uh, a year in the life of Lawrence and Vivian by an Australian author, covered the tour of Australia and New Zealand, and it, it sort of ignited my imagination. I thought, well, I wonder what they 
found the place to be really like, you know, when they were here. And what did New Zealanders think of them? And what did Australians think of them? Because they were the number one celebrity couple in the whole world. They were renowned for their film roles. They were, he was beautiful, she was beautiful. And uh, it, they were stars of, of the silver screen. And I thought, I wonder if I could write a novel set against the background of the old Vic company to earn. I read a lot more about it and, and then had a go. And the result is, is the novel, which has just come out. Larry and Verve. Mm. Well, um, I remember my parents talking about them. Whether or not they went to see them when they came to Auckland, I don't know. But um, it's a wonderful evocation of New Zealand in those days. And um, what, what, I mean, the research must have been great. Uh, you would know a lot about Auckland in particular, I imagine, but then you have to imagine the other centres they went to and um, place them there. Yes, well, I was only four years old at the time, so I, I certainly didn't yes. go and see any I of the performances, born. neither did my parents. They only went to the four main centres. They started in Auckland, flew to Auckland uh, from Australia, from Sydney. They did a season in Auckland, which was a sellout. Every performance was sold out. And then flew to Christchurch, performances there, and then to to Dunedin. And then they went to, on the final performances were in Wellington where the, the, the tour concluded. So they covered the four main centres but didn't go anywhere near the provinces. So my parents wouldn't have seen them either. No, but, if, you know, the New Zealand <coughs> in those times, I think they, they were quite surprised, weren't they, that it was not quite as, um, as much a cultural backwater as they'd been led to expect. Yes, that's right. And they found that there were some sort of trailblazing artists in New Zealand who were doing their best to create an indigenous culture. Uh, writers like Frank Sargison, who I had a meeting with with Lawrence. Uh, I contrived a meeting between the two men. Uh, there was Naya Marsh in, in Christchurch was producing Shakespearean plays and doing her own writing. So there was a culture here, but it was a very low-key one, and, and uh, because there, were no, there was no television, you see, that was a huge thing. People saw the, the world through the movies, and that really explained why Lawrence and Vivian were so famous, because they both had starring roles in, in uh, Hollywood uh, movies. Now, you, the story is not just about them and what was going on in their celebrated marriage under the... <laughs> under the covers, but um, it's also uh, about a young assistant stage manager, Jed, and, yes, uh, and what yes, he discovers right. here. Yes, he's a very important character, and, and events really are seen through the eyes of Jed, who's 26 years of age. He's come out of the war uh, rather sadly. He was a conscientious objector, which meant that he was interned during World War Two. After the war, England was in a very sad state. Uh, it had terrible winters in 1947 and 48. Um, there was uh, rationing was still in vogue, and um, a lot of people, young people, wanted to leave. And Jed had the chance to see the world when he got a job as the stage assistant. 
he'd always been interested in plays and, and drama and theatre, and he wanted to be a playwright himself. So he fortunately gets a job as a stagehand on, on the tour and subsequently gets to know Lawrence and Vivian as their sort of employees. He was one of the employees. They never called them Lawrence, uh, Larry and Viv to their faces, by the way. They, they were always Sir Lawrence and, and Lady Olivia. But behind the, the scenes, they were known affectionately as, as Larry and Viv. So Jed Winscombe, 26-year-old Jed, is getting away from the austerity of England and finds a new life here in, in the South Pacific. Yes, and you cleverly have him... Um in a relationship, or begin a relationship with a young immigrant, an architectural student. So that brings in um, the emigres who were coming to New Zealand at that time and, and the culture that they were bringing with them. Yes, that's a very important aspect of the narrative. Um, we accepted a few Jewish refugees, not nearly enough, I have to say, um, and um, they brought their European civilization to New Zealand, uh, had difficult times, but made huge contribution to society. And I'd always been interested in immigration, um, the immigrant experience, you know, what drove people to uproot themselves and start a whole new way of life in a far-off land across the other side of the world. And so um, I sort of conflated Jed Winscombe's story with the young Jewish refugee he gets to know, Natalia Rosberg, her family have been murdered by the Nazis. She's escaped to Switzerland and then comes to New Zealand to get away from from the Holocaust, memories of the Holocaust too, and becomes a part of a very small but vigorous Jewish immigrant community in Auckland, uh, led by a poet uh, who was a, a famous poet in in, uh, in uh, Germany, Karl Wolfskill. Uh, I've used Carl as the model for uh, a poet called Saul. I call him Saul Reiner. He's an elderly man, but he and Natalia get to know each other through their common interest in, in poetry, and uh, they both escaped from the Nazis. So Natalia and Jed begin a relationship and start a, both of them start a new life here in New Zealand. Yes, it's a very skillful weaving of, of the two tales of Larry and Viv coming to the end, even though it's it's been obscured, the end of a brilliant relationship and yes. heading back to England yes. for all that. Well, while their love is dying, and yes. Florence and is on the record of saying that he lost Vivian in, in Australia. Um, yeah. While their while their marriage is failing, um, Natalia and Jed, uh, their relationship is is developing and, and becomes a very loving one, and uh, and they both find happiness in New Zealand. What did you enjoy the most about writing this book? I think I enjoyed learning about the immigrants, particularly the Jewish immigrants to New Zealand, and. Uh, finding you know what just what a remarkable contribution they made to our society in in all aspects of of life you know from the arts to the the um, music literature um and uh, i had a, a very good 
book called Jewish Lives in New, Jewish Lives in New Zealand came out a few years ago, and it documents these uh, very skilled people who had to put up with a terrible amount of strife in their in their before they left and started a new life here. So that was very interesting. And also the lives of Lawrence and, and, and Vivian. I mean, they their marriage ended a few years after they toured here, and then they both developed their own individual careers, found other relationships and so on. So all those, the various lives of the people, the, the real ones and the imaginary ones, um, I found it fascinating. Well, thank you. It's a, it's a wonderful read. It tells us a great deal about um, New Zealand back in those times and, um, and, and a real insight into Larry and Viv. So thank you, Graham. The book thank, is called Larry and Viv by mm-hmm. Graham Lay, and it's published by Renaissance Publishing. And join us, Moran Rout and Ruth Todd, next Tuesday on Bookends on Plains FM 96.9.